You are listening to Particular Pilgrims, stories from Reformed Baptist history with commentary. I'm your host, Ron Miller, pastor of Covenant Baptist Church of Clarksville, Tennessee, and a longtime student and collector of Particular Baptist history. We're on the Man of God Network, brought to you by Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. If you were born to genuinely Christian parents who had you sprinkled as an infant and then raised you to know Christ, what would make you change your mind about baptism? If you were a minister who held those beliefs, what could convince you otherwise? How far would you go to live according to your conscience in this matter before God? What if it cost you everything in life, even your life itself? Let me begin to tell you the story of one who faced these situations. His name is Abraham Cheer. The first mention of Abraham is found in the record of his infant baptism on May 28, 1626, at St. Andrew's Church in Plymouth, England. His parents, John and Joanne Cheer, were said to be poor. His father made his living and trained Abraham as a fuller, that is, a manufacturer and seller of cloth. Abraham's later life demonstrated that he must have had a basic education, but he never attended university because of the need to work. Still, his parents nurtured their youngest son in God's ways. And sometime during his youth, he believed in Christ unto salvation. When the English Civil War broke out around Plymouth in 1642, Cheer was there. Later in the war's duration, he may have helped defend the city in the local militia, although he claimed never to have risen to any position of note, nor was he ever paid as a soldier. However, he was, for a short time, unknown to himself, chosen to be a military chaplain. After a few weeks, he was able to obtain his discharge, but this points towards something in his spiritual life. He must have been viewed by others as qualified, even at that young age, to serve in such a position. And there are quotes from a now lost church book that claim he was preaching and in the ministry even before joining the Baptist church in town. But it was in 1648, when he was 22, that a significant change came in his thinking. For it was then that he was baptized as a believer and, to quote his own words, joined himself in an holy covenant to walk in all the ordinances of the Lord blameless to the best of his light and power in fellowship with a poor and despised people. These people were the members of the particular Baptist church in Plymouth. Later that same year, he was chosen as their pastor. The church's call to him was signed by 150 members, so this was no insignificant nonconformist group. Cheer spent the rest of his life in ministry to this church and his Lord. There are no indications that he married, so he carried on his work alone, without the help or the burden of a family in what would later become dangerous times. What would cause a man, baptized as an infant, raised by godly parents, lovingly living in the same city with them, to change his mind about baptism? 
We know some of Abraham's thinking because in 1658, he and another local Baptist pastor wrote a defense of their churches. A significant section of this book dealt with the question of baptism. It attempted to answer a previous book, whose author accused them of leaving the church's practice to become dreaded Anabaptists. So Cheer and Robert Steed, his co-author, answered the arguments, and in that they show us at least some of what convinced Cheer to change his mind and his practice in regard to baptism. Cheer's foundational claim was that his change of mind about baptism was, quote, by evidence of scriptural light. In other words, he believed that the Holy Spirit had shown him from the Bible that the baptizing way was God's way. But then he went on to list specific reasons for observing what he called, quote, baptizing only upon personal profession of saving faith. The first was that God's instituted ordinances for worship were to be strictly followed according to how the Lord laid them down. Each point of worship practice had to be, quote, derived from the plain and express law and word of God. He represented God as being, quote, very jealous of all his ordinances to keep them exactly to his own methods and manner. So gospel worship was not to be added to or changed. Since he could find no appointment of infant baptism by Christ for his worship, it was not to be done. He summarized it as follows. We find a plain rule for the baptizing of believers and penitents. But for the baptizing of infants, we have not a word. And because we do not read it in precept or precedent, we dare not practice the same. This is the form of the argument related to what we today call the regulative principle of worship. A second reason that infant baptism was invalid was that it involved unregenerate people practicing this duty. The church was made up of saints, not saints and their children, said Cheer, and only those who publicly stated their faith with repentance were qualified for Christian baptism. Another reason was drawn from the doctrine of the covenant of grace. Cheer argued that while the first administration of the covenant of grace was the old covenant, it was no longer in force in the church. Instead, the final administration of the covenant of grace, the new covenant, eliminated circumcision and the idea of birth privilege. Now, a profession of faith was what gained a person entrance into the covenant. So baptism was a sign of belief and joining the church. You may recognize these arguments. The particular Baptist defense of believers' baptism has not substantially changed in almost 400 years. Speaking personally, I have found many Baptists who understood the opposing paedo-Baptist arguments but I have met few paedo-baptists who could explain the credo-baptist position. It's not rooted in an overly simplistic biblicism. 
It is rooted in a right view of the sanctity of God's worship, the nature of the New Testament church as consisting of saints, and a proper understanding of the biblical covenants. This is not a dispensational or anabaptistic set of arguments, but is thoroughly Protestant and Reformed in nature. Finally, let me relate part of a rather surprising story concerning baptism that Abraham Cheer was involved in. I hope my dear friend Michael Haken will forgive me for reading a shortened account from his new edition of Kiffin, Nollis, and Keach, since he admirably tells this story, although it is available in a number of other places. In the 1650s, Abraham Cheer received a request from a certain Captain Francis Langdon in Cornwall to come and baptize him. The only problem was that Langdon was suffering from pulmonary tuberculosis and was extremely weak. However, Langdon was quite convinced that God would heal him as he was being baptized. And in this way, the Lord would put his stamp of approval on the immersion of believers as the proper mode of baptism, as well as provide a visible refutation of the common paedobaptist charge that such an immersion was, quote, a murdering act. When Cheer traveled to meet Langdon, he was horrified to find him seemingly close to death. The doctors who attended him had given up any hope of his recovery. Here are some of Cheer's own words. His breath had almost left him, his speech hardly to be perceived, scarce able when he was in his chair to rise upon his feet. Indeed, when I saw him at first, I thought he would hardly live till the morning. This was his outward estate. And to make matters worse, it was January when Cheer had arrived to meet Langdon and Frost was on the ground. The place where Langdon was to be baptized was a mill pond about a half mile from his house. Cheer found himself uncertain as to what to do. The first night after I came, he later wrote, was spent in prayer jointly with some other Baptist believers. And privately about the thing, my soul was exceedingly clouded. I was unable to see through it. Jesus' words in Luke 4.12, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God, came to him with particular force, and he was of a mind not to follow through. Some of the Baptist brethren with chair were of this persuasion as well. But there were some who were convinced, like Langdon, that God would heal the captain as he was being baptized. Others believed that though Langdon might not be healed, he would not be worse off physically because of the baptism. And so God would vindicate his ordinance in the sight of all beholders, that it was not of itself destructive to any faithful, obedient person. Cheer and his fellow Baptists spent a considerable amount of time in prayer. As they did so, Langdon grew visibly weaker. In Cheer's words, he decayed more in one day now than in a week before. But he was still insistent on being baptized. When the hour finally arrived for the public baptism, Cheer first baptized two other women. Langdon was then brought to the waterside, but Cheer admitted he had not faith to baptize him. Langdon turned to another Baptist brother, a man by the name of Muckle, and asked him if he had faith to baptize him. Muckle did. Cheer later described what then happened. 
Brother Muckle goeth down with him into the water, and he's led by two or three men. He baptizeth him. Immediately, as soon as he is out of the water, he requireth that no person hold him, but strongly, swiftly, as one that runneth, he goeth up alone against the hill that was very steep, fifty or sixty feet, and then was led and helped home, declaring that he found at that instant recovery. The next day, he arose about noon, but didn't stay up long, saying he found the bed more comfortable than the fire. And he had some faintness, but still he declared that he lived by faith to have the cure perfected by degrees as his weakness grew by degrees. He rejoiced much that the Lord had so manifestly owned his ordinance. Dr. Haken goes on to say, now, what is significant about this text with regard to the mode of baptism is that there appears to have been no thought given Defining an easy way out through the use of an alternative mode for the baptism of Langdon, such as pouring or sprinkling. The reason is simple. For Cheer and his fellow Baptists, baptism meant one thing, immersion. As Cheer's contemporary, the London Baptist pastor John Norcott put it in an extremely popular tract on this subject, baptism is dipping or plunging. Dipping is God's appointment. Well, that's a rather unusual story and not one that we necessarily find grounds for in the scriptures, but we are glad that God worked strong faith in this man, that he answered his prayer and even approved his obedience to the institution of Christ. Thank you for listening today. This is Ron the Baptist wishing you grace and peace.